John chapter 11 this morning in your Bible, please. The book of John chapter number 11. And when you find it, stand to your feet with me as we read God's Word together, please. John chapter number 11. I begin reading in verse 14. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go into him. And then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off, only be about a mile or so, maybe a little more. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it to thee. And Jesus said unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? And she said unto him, Yes, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Thank you, and you may be seated. Well, this is the seventh and the last message on the subject that I've been dealing with here for a few weeks called Jesus is the Answer. And uh, the first message was Jesus is the answer to disappointment, the turning of water into wine. Then Jesus is the answer to doubt. A father came half doubting and half believing. His son was dying, and Jesus raised his son. Jesus is the answer to doubt. Then Jesus is the answer to disease. We talked about a man who had been ill for 38 years by the pool and unable to receive any healing, and Jesus healed him. Jesus is the answer to desire, and that was the people that were hungry, 5,000 men, their wives and children, 5,000 people plus, and they were hungry. They'd been with the Lord Jesus Christ in a very, very long day, and now they desire food, and the Lord Jesus Christ performs the miracle of the feeding of the multitude with five loaves and two little fishes, a boy's lunch. Then Jesus was the answer to despair. I talked about that last Sunday night when I talked about that Jesus Christ came walking to the disciples on the sea, and they were in despair. They were in terrible fear. The waves were dashing into the boat. They thought they might perish, and Jesus shows up, and Jesus speaks to them, and he calms them. And then lastly today, 
that Jesus is the answer to death. Jesus is the answer to death. Well, I come to this subject after a week of dealing with it in my own personal life. Last Saturday afternoon, I went to McLeod Hospital and the intensive care unit. They had called me and told me they'd put Thelma Dudley, who you don't know, you know Ms. McKay, and they put her in the hospital, and she was not expected to live. And I went there, and I talked to her, stood by her bed in the intensive care. I'll tell you, I thought, why do they have her in here telling me she's going to die? Because she was very much alive. She was laughing and joking and talking with me. And she ran her hair through her ha- hand through her hair and said, look here, I'm 94 years old, not a gray hair in my head. And then she pecked on her teeth. She said, look there, I've got every tooth in my head. I'm 94 years old. And I thought, well, you've got me beat on both of those, honey. And then she said, you know, they're going to put me in hospice. And I said, yeah, I hear that, Ms. McKay. And she said, well, you know, they tell me I'm going to die. So I'm ready to go over there. I just want to go on and get it over with. In all my 50 years of pastoring, and I've been at the bed of dying people hundreds of times, first time anybody said, let's just go on and get it over with. (laughs) I thought, that's a pretty good attitude, you know. She wasn't trying to hold on, and you know what? Within 24 hours or more, 36 maybe, she had passed into eternity. And so her funeral was here during the week. Then last Sunday morning, uh, they told me after the service that my maybe my closest friend in the ministry, Larry Upchurch of Raleigh, North Carolina. They found him dead sitting in his chair the next morning. His wife was in the hospital. And so I went to uh, participate in his services Friday. And uh, I have to say it was a record funeral, about as large as any I've been to in attendance in two hours and 40 minutes in duration. So we really sent him off well, didn't we? But uh, I love Larry, and I will miss his friendship. So I've been dealing with this subject all week. So verse 1, chapter 11, a certain man was sick. Lazarus was sick. He was sick, and Jesus was absent. Jesus had gone about 60 miles away, about two or three days' journey, down to the very south part of the country, across the river, and into what we would now call the land of Jordan. And he was there ministering to people, and uh, the two sisters sent word to him, he that you love is sick. That was a gentle hint, I think, for Jesus to stop what he was doing and come back and heal their brother, who was critically ill, obviously. And so, The Bible says here in verse number 6, we didn't read that, that Jesus purposefully abode two days still in the same place. He didn't get in any hurry. Jesus was never in a hurry. He was always operating on his timetable, and he knew all things. And so there was no reason for Jesus to get in a hurry. He knew what he was going to do. He knows the future. He knows every problem. And so he waited for two days. And then he went, he said to his disciples, let's go wake him up. And the disciples said, well, Lord, if he's sick and he's sleeping, he does, he's doing well, isn't he? After all, sick people need rest. 
And Jesus said, no, I'm not talking about that kind of sleep. I'm talking about Lazarus is dead in verse number 14, or verse number 11. Lazarus is dead. Now, nobody had sent word and told Jesus that Lazarus was dead. Here again, we see that Jesus is the Son of God. He is omniscient. He knew that Lazarus was dead, even though nobody had delivered a message telling him of that. And so he said, let's go wake him up in his omniscience as God he knew Lazarus had already passed away. When he got there, Mar- Martha, rather, one of the sisters, ran out to meet him. And I sense a little resentment here. Look in verse number 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. And go down to verse 32. A little bit later, her, si- her sister Mary comes and falls down at his feet, and she says the very same words. Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. I sense a little resentment. Why didn't you come on? Why did you linger behind for, for two days after you knew about it? I sense a questioning of Jesus Christ, that they thought they knew better what was good for the family. I sense there a, a, a sense of complaining a little bit, sort of a veiled complaint. Lord, why didn't you come on? You knew We sent word to you. Why didn't you come? And there's a little negativism, a little um, complaining spirit there. And they really reveal one other thing that's very important I want you to see. They believe that Jesus had power to heal. They did not believe he had power over death. They believed if he had gotten there in time, he would have been able to heal Lazarus and keep him from dying. But now that he had died, well, they were disappointed. They didn't seem to think at all that he would be able to heal or to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so in verse number 11, I deal with that phrase there. Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is dead. What do you mean, dead? You know it's been a very, very difficult, difficult thing for medical science to even define what death is. And the definition has been changing through the years. You wouldn't think that would ever change, would you? But what is death? When Jesus said, Lazarus is dead, what did he mean? Well, number one, he was talking about physical death. He was not talking about his soul and his spirit. He was talking about physical death. So I did a little research online and in some books and so on to try to find the single best definition of death, physical death, that I could find to share with you this morning. Here is physical death, the official definition as I understand it. Death is that state in which there is no self-activated heartbeat, brain waves, blood pressure, breathing, and no possibility of them resuming. That's death. You know, they used to put a mirror in front, of a, in front of the person's nostrils, and if the mirror fogged up, they would say he is alive. And if the mirror didn't fog, then the person was dead. But that was a very inaccurate way to measure death. 
to use a mirror because sometimes people would come back. They would resuscitate. And sometimes their breathing was so faint, it wouldn't be picked up by such a crude method. That's the only technology we had at that point in time. But now we say that death is the stage in which there's no self-activated heartbeat. In other words, your heart can beat on its own. When there are no brain waves or blood pressure and no breathing, and there's no possibility of them resuming, that's death. That's graveyard dead. That's stone cold dead, isn't it, when you get to that point there. I've all, people often ask me, in fact, somebody asked me this week, how many funerals do you think you've conducted now, preacher? And I said, I have no idea. In the early days, I kept records of them, and I didn't do very many. And then it got to where I had so many, I couldn't keep up with them, and I don't know, but hundreds and hundreds, lots of funerals. I would think I've probably conducted as many funerals as any, anybody in Florence, maybe more. I sound like I'm bragging, but that's the facts, ma'am. I've been to a lot of funerals. I've done a lot of funerals. I think you know that now in 50 years. Then people say to me, what do you know about death after all those funerals, Richard? My answer, not much. Nobody ever came back and talked to me about their funeral. Nobody knows what's on the other side of that door, do they? What do you know about funeral? What do you know about death, Pastor? Not a whole lot. The only thing I know about death is what I read in the Bible. I mean, obviously, I know that people get cold, stiffen up, develop rigor mortis, they embalm them, all that stuff. Everybody knows. But the only thing I really know that is not common knowledge is what the Bible says. And the Bible, by the way, is the only book in all the world that speaks authoritatively about death. It's the only book that can authoritatively describe it. I don't want you to look up these references because I want to go too fast for you to do that. But I want to read to you about five or six different passages here, and I want to show you that the Bible tells us more about death than any other single source that we could possibly consult. First of all, Though medical science has struggled with the definition of death, the Bible is very clear in its definition of death. You don't have to have but one source to know what death is. You'll find it in James chapter 2 and verse 26. The body without the spirit is dead. There's your definition. The body without the spirit is dead. The Bible tells me the cause of death. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 26, it says, the wages of sin is what? Death. That's the cause of every single death that ever occurs. The Bible tells me of the certainty of death. I go back to the book of Job, chapter number 30 and verse number 23. You might just want to write some of these down, but don't try to look them up with me. In Job 30 and 23, it says, I know that thou wilt bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living, all living, A-double-L, all. Every single person is going to visit the house of death one day. In the book of Romans, chapter 5 and verse number 12, 
I read this passage that says that every one of us will die. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Often in funerals, I make this statement. We know that all of us have sinned because all of us will die, every single person. The proof that we have sinned is that we die. The wages of sin is death. So the Bible defines death. The Bible gives the cause of death. The Bible talks about the certainty of death. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse number 8, no man has power to retain his spirit. Nobody can. I, I talked to Brother Larry Upchurch about Monday before he died last Sunday, and he said, Bill, I'm just trying to make it two more years here, and I'll have the church ready to turn it over to somebody. Two more years. And he was talking two more years. He didn't know it. He had five more days. Nobody can hold on. All the plans of mice and men, they vaporize in the face of old grinning death, don't they? The Bible tells me the definition of death, the cause of death, the certainty of death. It also tells me the nature of death. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number 26, it says death is the last enemy. And it says it's the enemy of both God and man. It's the enemy of God because it strikes people and it takes from them life. And God is the only author of life. He's the only giver of life. It's the enemy of man. It takes everything from us, family, possessions, life, health. It strips away every single thing that we possess as human beings. The nature of death, it is our grand enemy. And the Bible tells me something else about physical death. It says that that's not the end, that life continues after death occurs. The soul and the spirit they live on. And so the righteous, it, then the Bible divides people into two categories, the righteous and the unrighteous, the saved and the lost. It says this about the righteous and their death in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8. It says, absent from the body, that's physical death, but present with the Lord. That's not the end absent from the body. And so I look in the face of Ms. McKay. I look in the face of my friend Larry Upchurch. I look in the face of people whose funerals I'm about to conduct. And when they know the Lord, here's what I say. They are absent from that old body that's just a shell. That's just a, their tabernacle, the tent in which they live for these years. But then that soul and that spirit are not in that casket. That soul and that spirit have gone to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. He said to the thief that believed in him, today you will be with me in paradise. No purgatory, no thousand years of waiting, no going and getting your soul purged somewhere. Today you will be with me in paradise, the Lord Jesus Christ told that man that day. In Philippians chapter 1, it says, to depart and be with Christ is far better that's hard to conceive for us who are left behind, isn't it? But when you've lost a loved one and when you've lost a friend, remember this, they're in a better condition, they're in a better place, they're in a better shape than they've ever been before. 
They are, they have departed to be with Christ, and it is far better, not from our standpoint, but that's God's viewpoint on it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9 describes what they are now seeing when we've lost our loved ones. Eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. In other words, we can't even mentally conceive, we can't conceptualize the wonderful things that are happening in the life of those who know the Lord, who are righteous people who've gone on to be with him. But then the unrighteous, the Bible also speaks about them. And my, what somber, somber tones it speaks about them. In the book of Luke, it describes a rich man, and he died, and he went to hell. Not because he was rich, but because he had rejected the Lord. And in the book of Luke, it says, in hell, he lifted up his eyes, listen to this phrase, being in torment. Being in torment. I know that people say hell, some people a hundred times a day. They blow it off. It's a casual thing. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a word. It's a profane word. Hell. Hell this. Hell that. Oh, my soul, if you read your Bible and if you believe one whit of that Bible, you won't make jokes about hell. It is a place of torment. In hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8, it says, The fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the whoremongers and the sorcerers and the idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Somebody said, you go here, Monroe, he's old fire and brimstone preacher. No, I'm a Bible preacher. I preach the Bible, and I don't dwell on the fire and the brimstone. But my friend, I'm not going to tear it out of my Bible. It's there, and you have to deal with it. It's there, and you have to deal with it. You say, I don't believe it. It won't change it. One, not one degree of the temperature of hell will change because every atheist in the world lines up and says, I don't believe that. No. There is a place called hell, I regret to say. And I pray that nobody that ever heard me preach will ever go there not one. But I know this, if you reject Jesus Christ and you turn your eye back on him and you live a life of evil and sin and wickedness and you reject my Savior today, the Bible's teaching is very clear where you will spend eternity. No, the Bible tells me about death. It defines death. It gives the cause of death. It, gives, it says that death is certain. It tells me the nature of death, that it's my greatest single enemy of all. And it tells me that whether I'm saved or lost, existence continues after death. So Jesus stood there that day. Lazarus is dead. Lord, he stinks by now. There's a stench in this heat. 
And we put his body in that grave, but there wasn't modern embalming methods in those days. The Jews didn't embalm. They wrapped him in a sheet, put some ointment on them, about 100 pounds of spices and stuff, covered them up in a cocoon of, of, of spices and so on, and put them in there. And that was it. They buried them usually the same day they died. And so Jesus goes out there to that tomb. And there's just one question now as he stands before that tomb. Just one. Will he live again? Is there any reasonable expectation at all that he will live again? Or do we have to just consign ourselves to the fact he's going to be there forever and ever and ever? Is there any hope? Will he live again? Job wrote about that in chapter 14. Remember who Job is before he wrote this. There was a storm, a typhoon came, a whirlwind, a hurricane. And his 10 kids were celebrating a birthday. And the hurricane tore the house down on them. All 10 of them were killed one afternoon. Here's a man speaking from the depth of hurt and pain and woundedness and brokenness. Here's a dad who had stood and looked at 10 caskets. 10. All those little kids that he had raised up in various levels, now they're adults. 10 caskets in a row. What does he say? That's the question on his mind. If a man die, Job said, will he live again? If a man die, will he live again? Martha believed in immortality, the soul. And so when she stood there with Jesus in that cemetery that day, she said, Jesus, I know that he will rise again in the last day, but there's no hope right now. Do you know this thing of immortality of the soul is one of the deepest beliefs that humankind has? The belief in the immortality of the soul is not just a Christian belief. Everybody believes that intuitively. It's in the DNA of human beings. Everybody believes that except about one half of 1% of the world's population, the atheists. Everybody else believes that life goes on after that burial. The ancient Egyptians, the oldest civilization on the earth, they built those huge pyramids. We go to see those pyramids today as tourists and fascinating all the technology and so on that they had that we don't even understand. We don't know how they move those huge stones up there, many stories in the air, without any mechanical devices at all that we know about. How did they do that? Mystery. But we know that down in the bowels of those pyramids, there were really burial sites. Those pyramids contained graveyards. Many people were buried in them. Who were the people in those graveyards? For the most part, that was the Egyptian kings and royalty that qualified to get there. 
We know their process where they embalmed these people and mummified their bodies and put them in there. And then they would put them in these fancy, sometimes even solid gold crypts because these wealthy kings own the wealth of the world almost. And then they would embalm that body and put them there. And they would put in that crypt with them. And in the pyramids, they put all these things that they thought they would need in the next world. Money, gold, silver, food, seeds, so they could grow a garden that we found in the last few years. that had been there now for 4,000 years or so. The Egyptians believed in it. The Greeks believed in it. They would dress the warrior in his armor. And they would bury him, prepared for battle in the next world because he had been a warrior here in this life. The Norsemen believed in it. They worshiped the god Thor, the god of war. They believed that he had a palace called Valhalla. And they would send their soldiers and their warriors because warriors were the most respected and esteemed people in their culture. They would send them off there. They would embalm the body. They would put with him his swords. They would put with him his knives. They would put on the armor of the warrior. They would put him in a canoe and take him out to sea, and then they would abandon the canoe, and they would let him drift endlessly, never to be seen again in the broad ocean. But they believed that soul and that spirit lived on somewhere. The American Indians would take the warrior, and they would put in his hand the bow and the arrow and the spear and the knife and prepare him to be able to hunt when he went into the next world. They believed, they didn't believe that death was the end. The only people that believe that are some modern people in Western culture, in Europe, Western Europe and America, and maybe a few in Asia. And they don't want to face the fact that that life continues. And yet there's something in the DNA of most people. They believe that death is not the end. They stand there and look down into that casket where there's a loved one cold and still. And they say, I wonder where they are and what they're doing. And can they see me? And do they know what's happening? And most of all, will I ever see him again? Will I ever see him again? Dr. Criswell, Dr. W.A. Criswell at First Baptist Dallas for so many years, he told a story that touched my heart so deeply. Dr. Criswell said, one day my secretary sent a man in to see me who had come. He had a book in his hand. The man was the dean of one of the largest universities in Texas, and he had come to see me to show me something in this book. He said, this is the most unusual book I've ever seen in my life. And, of course, they had a library of hundreds of thousands of copies. Dr. Crystal said, what's so unusual about your book? And the professor said to him, this book was written by a scientist. This little book was written by an atheist. He didn't believe in God. He rejected the Bible. He rejected the Christian faith. He didn't believe in any afterlife. And the whole book is about that. And Dr. Criswell said, then why is it so unusual? 
And the professor said to Dr. Cristobal, after he wrote the book, he had the publisher add an addendum, an epilogue, one page at the end of the book, one little postscript, if you will. The book had already gone to press, and he called him and said, I want you to I want you to put one more page there at the very end of the book after people read it. And he said, I want you to read it, Dr. Criswell. And he passed the book to, to Dr. Criswell. And here's what was written on that page. All the things that I have thus far printed seem to me to be true. But since I have written them, my father and my mother have died. And somehow, I cannot believe that somewhere they're alive today. Mm Mm-hmm. It's different when it comes home. It's real cool in the academic circle when you're not hurting to stand up and postulate about stuff that nobody can prove or disprove. But something else when it's mom and dad, when it's husband and wife, when it's child, when it's the dearest friend you have, will they live again? Will he live again? And so I'm standing here. Here's Martha. Here's Mary. And we're standing looking at the tomb, Lazarus. And there's only one thought in our mind. Can anybody raise him from the dead again? Jesus has come. Can he raise him? I say to the scientist, Mr. Scientist, you come and stand here with us. Mr. Science, get your technology and get your medicines and your potions and your chemicals, and you come and stand here with us. Can you do anything for the dead man in the tomb? And the scientist goes in there with his chemicals and his technology. He takes that decaying body and he opens it up. And he looks down inside it, and he does an anatomical examination. He does an autopsy. He checks every organ, every muscle, every bone, every sinew. And he said, I can tell you why he died. Well, I don't remember asking that. I want to know, can you raise him again? And the scientist says to me, no, there's nothing I can do. Well, Mr. Scientist, you're so learned. You know so much. You've got all the answers. What is death? Mr. Scientist, what is the soul? Can you tell me what the spirit is? No, I don't have any of those answers. Science is silent. I look over in the crowd, and there's a philosopher there. Mr. Philosopher, you're a wise man. Come up here and tell us, will he live again? Can you raise him from the dead? No. There's not anything that I can do. We don't raise people from the dead in philosophy. We attempt to tell people what the purpose is of their life and the the meaning of life. Sorry, I can't help you after they've died. I call the religionist, the preacher, the theologian. Mr. Theologian, Mr. Preacher, Mr. Pastor, can you tell us who can raise him from the dead? 
and the religionist comes with his robes and his incantations and his candles and his incense and he's ringing his bells. And I say, can you do anything? And he says, oh, no, we're not into miracles anymore. No, we're not into miracles anymore. You know, those old-fashioned Bible thumpers, they believed in this resurrection stuff, literally. But we don't do that anymore. We're more enlightened than that, than that crowd of fundamentalists. We teach the benefits of ethical living. We're working towards social justice in the world. We want to make the world a better place to live. But I can't help you once somebody's dead. And somebody hands me a Bible, and I read in John chapter 11 and verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead and four days in the tomb and stinking, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Yeah, I can help you. What's your name, sir? I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus. Turn your Bible over to Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 18. You will read there that I hold in my hand the keys to death and to hell. A key means authority. A key means you have the right to enter, to go in to the door. I can go into death and I can control death. I'm the giver of life. I have power over death, and I proved it because I died, and three days later I came back. And so now that I have the authority and the control over it, Lazarus, come forth. And a man stands up, wrapped and can hardly move, and he stumbles and he struggles, but he comes out the door, out of the grave, out of the graveyard, out of the grave clothes, and ultimately out of the whole graveyard. Yes, Jesus said, I have power over death. Somebody said if he hadn't called Lazarus' name, the whole crowd would have resurrected in that cemetery. Lazarus, come forth. And he demonstrated his power over death. Listen to me carefully, and I'm through. But the resurrection is not a date on the calendar. And the resurrection is not an event that someday will occur. The resurrection is a man. It's a person. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that has power over life and over death, and he's the only one that does. He is the answer to death. Look down in verse 45. Every message I've opened almost telling you that the reason John indicated or wrote about these seven miracles was because that John wanted people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says that many people believed when they saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. So Friday, Norm and I got up real early and drove to Raleigh. And uh, I was to speak in the program, and big program, as you might imagine, that type thing. I sat on the very front row right there. 
And in front of me was the casket with my friend. It was a black casket. I don't know if I've ever seen a black casket before. It was beautiful, obviously. It was expensive. Silver handles on it, chrome. Beautiful, beautiful flowers covered it up. Flowers all around. Choir loft full. People singing. Building packed out. And I sat there. And I thought, well, boy, this is a wonderful, wonderful service to honor this man who pastored this church for 53 years. But then I sat there and I looked at that casket. I watched that undertaker come and take his Allen wrench and screw the lid down. And I said, um, I wonder when that thing will be opened. I wonder how the Lord's going to work all that out. I don't think those little screws are going to make a whole lot of difference. I don't think the Lord will need an Allen wrench to reverse that. And I sat there, and I had mixed emotions. My heart was breaking. I will miss him. We talked on the phone almost every week. On Monday, he called me. He said, Bill, here's a book. You got to buy it. Order it right now from Amazon. I want you to read this book. This is a great book. And he was all excited about the book. And he's gone on Sunday. I won't talk to him again for a while. And I sat there with great sadness, but I sat there with great hope. Because Jesus is the answer to death. Our heads are bowed.